Before we start, um, I just want to uh, acknowledge Scott. He, he didn't know I was going to do this, by the way. Uh, he does so much, you guys, for the church, for Sunday, Sunday morning, running the sound and the projector and everything. And he put together that website already, which I think is phenomenal. So if we could give him a round of applause, that'd be great. <laughs> And then I'd like to ask two people to come up here with me, uh, Brian Enyart Jr. and Gordon Carroll. How's it going? Thanks for being here. So a church uh, needs uh, elders, uh, now known uh, today as an elder board. And uh, I asked uh, Gordon and Brian to uh, join me in... Uh, making up the elder board for the new church. Um, Gordon has been <laughs> affiliated with this ministry for how long? Uh, just since last week. <laughs> <laughs> since the beginning. How, how many years has that been? Let's see. Um, I don't even know. I can't tell you. It's, 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 I think it's, it's been, been de decades. It's been decades. Yeah. yeah. So very uh, crucial to just everything that you know, has happened over the years. Thank you. And then Brian, uh, when did you move to Colorado? 2006 or seven. Okay, great. So he's been out here for 15 years and came out here really with the goal of learning more, pursuing ministry, being involved, and has, uh, you know, gotten married and raised kids in, in this ministry as well. And so I just wanted to let everybody know uh, who the elder board is, and thank both of them for agreeing to do this. It's a, kind of a thankless role, but a very important one. So thank you both. And thank you for taking this leadership position because it's, it's needed, and we really appreciate it. So. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks, man. All right. <clears throat> Good morning. It's the uh, first Sunday in December uh, here at AKF. And the Bible can be very overwhelming and it can be intimidating. Um, if you think about it, it's larger than most books that, that, that exist out there, larger than most books that we have. One could argue that it's actually 66 books all wrapped up into one. And if you sit down to read the Bible and you do it like you would any other book by just starting at the beginning and reading it all the way through, you're not gonna finish, <laughs> at least not in any normal amount of time. I think the size and the complexity of the Bible is what actually prevents many people from spending a significant amount of time in God's word. Um, but just the acknowledgement that the Bible actually is God's word should be all of the motivation and encouragement that we need to dive into the Bible on a consistent basis. One of the things that really helped me personally not be intimidated about reading the Bible and it gave me the ability to, to literally read from any part of the Bible without feeling lost and actually understanding what I was reading was when I obtained a high-level 
overview of the story of the Bible. You may have heard of the phrase 10,000 foot view. That's what I'm referring to. Have you ever heard that the plot of the Bible is the key to understanding its details? That's exactly what I'm talking about. So what we're going to do today is we're, we're going to look at an overview of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning to the end, and my hope is to share with you what has really helped me understand the Bible, the history of the world, and that it may help you as well. So the first book of the Bible is called Genesis. This might be the most read book of the Bible simply because it's first. And if people don't know where to start, they just start in the most logical place at the beginning. I actually believe that Genesis is one of the most important books in the Bible. And some people in my past and probably still today uh, don't like it when I refer to one book of the Bible as more important, of the, uh, as more important than others, but that actually doesn't bother me. Um, the, the reality is many parts of the Bible would make absolutely no sense without other accompanying parts, and Genesis is incredibly foundational, I would argue, to the rest of Scripture. So to begin, Genesis actually contains over half of the Bible's history from a time perspective. That's shocking to most people. So what do I mean by this? The Bible covers roughly 4,100 years of time, and well over 2,000 of those years are all happening in the book of Genesis. Again, this is one of the reasons that I believe Genesis is such an important book of the Bible. Now, Genesis begins with the creation account, which is the very beginning of the universe that we reside in. Um, at AKF, we believe Genesis to be a literal, historical account of what has transpired in the past. A lot of Christians today do not take that position, but that is our official position here. So we start with who? Adam and Eve the first two human beings to ever exist. Let's think about one thing, a couple things really quick. Adam and Eve are not only foundational to mankind, but they're also foundational uh, to heterosexuality and marriage. So we have that from the very beginning, and those are two things that are under attack today. We come to the story of Noah, and this comes very early on, so Genesis Chapter 6, it's the story of Noah, the ark, and the global flood. Now, while this comes relatively quickly as we read from Genesis 1 to Genesis 6, it didn't actually happen that fast. A lot of time elapsed. Um, Noah was born approximately 1,000 years after creation, and the flood didn't happen until 600 years after that. In Genesis 12 is when Abraham comes on the scene. And Abraham was born a little over 2,000 years after creation, and his life was lived during the halfway point of the Bible. Let that sink in. Genesis 12 is the halfway mark of the Bible. What's funny is if you Google this, and you Google halfway point in the Bible or whatever, you, whatever phrase you want, 
everybody's trying to figure out which verse is in the middle. They're like, oh, it's Psalm 118 or Psalm 119. You can't get an answer from this from a time perspective, but that's when it happens is during Abraham's life. By the way, Scott, I should have asked you about this. Do you have the couple of slides that I need you to do? Okay, great. So I actually have a timeline of the Bible on the wall in my house. And it's, a very, it's very handy to reference, and it shows the entire history of the world from creation all the way up until actually Trump being elected president. So here you can see, this is, uh, th this is uh, the timeline, and you can see how large it is. It's over five feet wide and over four feet tall. And it includes not only biblical history, but secular history as well, so you can kind of piece together when other things were happening, like Egypt becoming a nation and things of that nature. By the way, th this is phenomenal. Um, if you want to order this, it's uh, at amazingbibletimeline.com. People that come over to our house are fascinated by it. It's Christian-based, so it starts with creation, goes through, uh, you know, Christ's uh, birth, death, resurrection, and then all the way up until the present day. It has all the main characters in the Bible, when they were born, when they died. Phenomenal. So Abraham is a crucial, crucial figure in the Bible. It's Abraham who God chooses to be the father of a nation that God will call his own, Israel. Abraham and Sarah give birth to Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah give birth to Jacob. Jacob married Leah and Rachel and gave birth to 12 sons. Among those <clears throat> were, you know, two maidservants along with Leah and Rachel. And then those 12 sons end up as the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel. Very important historical context there to understand the Bible. By the way, uh, I searched this up. The Bible dozens of times refers to the fathers of Israel, fathers plural, as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, he is sold into slavery in Egypt in Genesis. And God blesses Joseph and helps him rise to power in Egypt. And he actually becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. Then God creates a famine in order to bring Joseph's brothers and their wives and their families to Egypt. By the way, this is about 70 people. And this, these 70 people is the beginning of the nation of Israel. And remember, Israel is another name for Jacob. So the family of Jacob, they live, they thrive in Egypt under the protection of Joseph and Pharaoh, the two men in charge. And then the final verse of the book of Genesis is Joseph's death, final verse. So Genesis spans 2,400 years of history. Think about it, that's longer than how many years it's been since Christ was born. Long period of time, all in one book. Next is the book of Exodus. Exodus begins with a new pharaoh rising up as king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, meaning he did not have the same relationship that the previous pharaoh 
had with Joseph. And that was really bad news for Israel. Um, by the way, Israel at this time had multiplied significantly in Egypt. Actually, the new, I don't know if this was a figure of speech or not, but the new Pharaoh actually said that Israel had more people than they had in Egypt. So significant numbers. So what did he do? He made them slaves. So then we come to the birth of Moses. This is probably the most famous story of a birth of anyone in history other than Christ. Why is this significant? Well, births are never notable because nobody has any idea who they are, what they're going to do, or who they will become, right? And so it's, it's the people who end up doing things significant, becoming notable throughout their lives, accomplishing things, etc., that we end up remembering, and we remember when they died, but not a birth. But God has plans for people, often from birth and even in the womb. And so that's what makes this very different, and Moses is such a case. So he was hidden in a basket, placed into a river, so as to not be killed by Pharaoh's proclamation that all male children should be immediately put to death after birth. He was found and saved by Pharaoh's daughter. So God had a plan from that moment to bring Israel out of captivity and rescue them from slavery in Egypt using both Moses and his brother Aaron. By the way, for some historical context here, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they first confronted Pharaoh. So the book of Exodus covers the 10 plagues that God brought upon Pharaoh in Egypt in order, to, in order to get Pharaoh to let Israel go and for God to make a name for himself. Very important piece there. It wasn't just to get Israel out of there. God could have done that, you know, miraculously, su supernaturally. Um, God wanted to create a reputation so that other nations outside of Egypt would hear what he did to, to, to Egypt and so that they would fear him and fear Israel, the nation of Israel, because he was their God. Very important piece there. The 10th plague in Egypt was the death of the firstborn. And this is actually where Passover originated. They would sacrifice a lamb they would put its blood on the doorposts, on their doorposts, and that blood was a sign for God to pass over those homes as he went throughout all of Egypt, killing all the firstborn. <clears throat> this, of course, represented Christ uh, as the lamb slain whose blood covers us from God's wrath and eternal death. I just love God's brilliance in, in his plans, not only dealing with the situation at hand, but just thinking through, you know, giving us things f forever, signs as to what was really going on behind the scenes. It's beautiful. So Moses leads Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness in pursuit of the promised land. They cross the Red Sea, which consumes Pharaoh and his army. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, which are the foundation of the law. The next book of the Bible is Leviticus, 
which details God's laws for Israel. There are actually over 600 laws. The next books, Numbers and Deuteronomy, chronicle Israel's journeys in the wilderness and further memorialize God's laws. Moses actually dies at the very end of Deuteronomy, never setting foot in the promised land. So it's important to note here that Israel did not enter the promised land until after Moses' death. So the Pentateuch, which is a name to describe the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, that is the history of the creation of the world, the formation of the nation of Israel, and everything leading up to the promised land. The next book is called Joshua, and that's named after the man who essentially took over for Moses after Moses died. We discussed this briefly in Sunday school this morning, but of all of the people in the wilderness who were promised they would enter the promised land, only two did, and that was Caleb and Joshua. So Joshua led Israel over the Jordan River into the promised land and into the country of Israel that still exists to this day. One of my favorite things to do when I'm reading the Bible and studying the Bible is I will just go to Google Maps online And if there's a city that's mentioned in the Bible, I'll search it. Or if there's a country, I'll search it. A river, I'll search it. And very many times, it's still there, and you can just look at exactly where they crossed over. So for example, when they first crossed over, it was near Jericho. And if you go look, you can see where Jericho still is, and it's right on the other side of the river, right next to the wilderness. Pretty phenomenal. The rest of the Old Testament is largely the history of, of the nation of Israel, which we now have through this context of the first five books of the Bible. And it's the rise and fall, the rise and fall, the rise and fall of God's people. Now, it's important to have this big picture, high-level understanding of the Old Testament so that when you are reading a particular book, you understand the historical context of what's going on. Now, that brings us to the New Testament. There is about 400 years of time that passes between the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. That's an important piece to understand. That's quite a bit of time. The first four books of the New Testament are referred to as the Gospels. So that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, there's this general idea held by Christians today that the Old Testament and New Testament represent some sort of a division in God himself and his people. So, for example, people, you'll hear this all the time, people refer to how God acted in the Old Testament, but who he is in the New Testament. It's the same God. (laughs) And then people think that the Old Testament is Israel and the New Testament is the church or the body of Christ. And that's not exactly accurate either. The Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are simply a continuation of the Old Testament, and they're a continuation of this story of God's people, Israel. This is why Matthew starts out with a genealogy tying Christ back to David and Abraham. Very significant in Israel's history. This is why the wise men come to Jerusalem asking, where is he who has been born 
king of the Jews. This is why the priests and scribes tell Herod that Christ will be born in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. John the Baptist was in the womb six months before Christ. And the angels told his parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, you will bear a son and shall call his name John, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Notice a theme here. This is still Israel's story. It picks up right where it left off in the Old Testament. When the angel Gabriel announced Christ's birth to Mary, he said, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary responded to this good news by saying, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. When John the Baptist was born, his father Zacharias said, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. One more example, and there's plenty more. When Jesus was born, Simeon said, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. I cannot drive this point home enough. The Gospels are a continuation of the story of God's chosen people, Israel, the Jews. This is crucial if we're going to understand the historical context while we read the Gospels in the New Testament. The four Gospels record the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The last chapter of Matthew, chapter 28, records the resurrection of Christ. The last chapter of Mark, chapter 16, records the resurrection of Christ. The last chapter of Luke, chapter 24, records the resurrection of Christ. And the second to last chapter of John, chapter 20, records the resurrection of Christ. So you want to envision these four Gospels all ending up at the exact same point, the resurrection of Christ, and all of this is leading up to the beginning of the next book, which is the book of Acts. So all four Gospels end with Christ's resurrection and his interactions with people after he rose from the dead. And then Acts chapter 1 picks up right where the four Gospels end, right before Christ left the earth and ascended to heaven. So 
when reading the New Testament, <clears throat> think of the four Gospels as a continuation of the Old Testament and hap happening concurrently, and then know all of these lead up to Christ's ascension, which happens immediately at the beginning of the book of Acts. The very, very beginning of, of Acts uh, 1 7, it says this, and he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he, referring to Christ, had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. This event is very significant. It is known as the Ascension of Christ. Understanding the historical placement of the book of Acts in relation to the Gospels and in relation to the Old Testament is very important to understand what is going on throughout the book of Acts. Acts is easily confusing if you don't understand this big picture in this context. Many people refer to the book of Acts as a transitional book. And I actually think that's a pretty accurate description of what's going on. So Acts begins with Jesus leaving his apostles. By the way, there were only 11 at the time. Uh, Judas had killed himself, and he had yet to be replaced. And so this is, the, this is really the beginning of the story of life without Jesus. Okay? The Gospels talk about what life was like with Jesus under his training, etc. Now he ascends to heaven, and that's the very first few verses of Acts. Now we're going to look at what life looks like without Jesus on earth. Um, this is also important to note. Uh, Jesus left the 12, for lack of a better term, in charge. Uh, right after Jesus ascended, within a, within a few verses, they replaced Judas. They replaced him with Matthias, and so the 12 apostles took over for Christ after they had been under his teachings for three years. He had prepared them for this now that he has ascended into heaven. Now, why did Jesus leave the church under the control of 12 men? It's because this is still the story of God's people Israel. The 12 apostles are symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. Throughout the book of Acts, we see Israel, meaning the individuals, reject their Messiah. The good news of Christ's resurrection is presented to the Jews throughout Acts. And even though some repent and some believe, the vast majority did not. So since Israel as a whole rejected their Messiah, God cuts off Israel. This probably happens around Acts chapter 7, which is the stoning of Stephen. We see something unique happen, and if you don't, 
I wouldn't have caught this probably by myself. If somebody doesn't point this out, it's easily missed. But as Stephen is being stoned and as he's dying, he actually sees Jesus in heaven and he says that Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. Previously, <clears throat> earlier, in, at the end of the Gospels and the beginning of Acts, it says that Jesus, after he ascended to heaven, was seated at the right hand of the Father. So there's a change there, and it very well could be that what was happening, meaning Stephen, who was actually a, a good man, being killed by fellow Jews over preaching the good news of what happened with Christ's resurrection, was enough for Jesus to stand in judgment over Israel. So what happens shortly after the stoning of Stephen? Uh, God raises up another apostle named Paul. This happens in Acts 9. And what's interesting is that uh, there's only, he only raises up one apostle. And I believe that is for, to, to, for him to be the one apostle to the one body of Christ. Many Christians mistakenly think that Paul replaced Judas, but uh, if you just read Acts chapter 1, you'll see that uh, Matthias was chosen by the 11 to replace Judas. And so this transitional nature that we talk about in the book of Acts is from Israel to the body of Christ, from Jews to Gentiles. And as you can imagine, this did not come without tension. Okay, If you have a special place in God, in God's life, you're his special chosen people, having that taken away from you, you're not going to accept that very easily. So what do we see? Well, we see Gentiles. By, by the way, all of this happens at the same time. Acts 7, Acts 9, Acts 10. It's all happening at the same time. Now, starting in Acts 10, we see Gentiles getting saved without being circumcised, without being baptized, without keeping the law. This was new, and this upset people, especially people who felt entitled to their position with God. So this caused such a stir that they decided to have a get-together, a council, if you will, to discuss this dissension that arose over these events. By the way, this is smack dab in the middle of the book of Acts, uh, to make it easy for you to remember, and this is found in Acts chapter 15. So the event recorded in Acts 15 is known as the Jerusalem Council. Now, this is important. I say this, and I say it a lot, and people sometimes misunderstand me, so I want to make sure I, I get this clear here. The Jerusalem Council is the most recent significant event in Christian history. Let that sink in. The Jerusalem Council is the most recent significant event in Christian history. Now, what am I saying by that? What I'm saying is, is that there were other councils. A lot of them were in the Catholic Church, and I don't believe those were, had anything to do with you know, un, being under inspiration of God. I don't think we can take the results of those councils and say, well, that's exactly what God wanted. But the Jerusalem Council is different. This is Peter, this is Paul, this is James, and this is recorded for us in Scripture. God put it there for our benefit. And so that means if we go backward from today and we say, when is the last thing we know 
that happened in Christian history that we can literally utilize as truth, it's the Jerusalem Council. This happened after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What did they decide at this council? Very, very important. They decided that Gentiles would not keep the law and that the 12 apostles would continue to keep the law. By the way, there were only 11. Uh, James was killed in Acts 12. Now, this is significant. We have the leaders of the church coming up with two different sets of instructions for different people. Gentiles don't need to do this. Jews need to continue to do this. They didn't say nobody's going to do this. So how many Christians today are intimately familiar with the details and the events surrounding the Jerusalem Council? Not many, unfortunately. What's even more significant is that the original apostles, the original apostles would continue in the book of Acts to preach obedience to the law for Jews and it was Paul who would take a message of uncircumcision and no law to his converts. We literally see this happening side by side throughout the book of Acts. And we see why. They made this decision at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Here's an example. In Acts 21, James tells Paul, and when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing. Wow, this is Acts 21. This is late in the game. James is saying there's myriads of Jews who have believed, they're converted, they're saved, and they are zealous for the law. And he's saying that as, it, as it's a good thing. And then he tells Paul, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing. Notice the stark contrast there. And by the way, what, when he says we have written and decided, what's he referring to? The Jerusalem council, okay? We, we didn't read this, but in Acts 15, they actually talk about the letter that they wrote. After they had the council, after they decided what would happen, they literally memorialized it by writing a letter, and this is the letter that he's referring to. So there are two different messages being preached and taught to believers at the same time. Now, it is understanding that point right there that is the key to understanding the remaining books of the Bible. If you do not understand what happened in the book of Acts, what happened at the Jerusalem Council, the decision made, two messages going to two different groups of people, the remainder of the Bible is going to be very confusing. Once you see that, though, it becomes relatively easy. Since Paul was teaching that believers should not observe the law, his epistles come next, and they're written to us as Gentiles who don't need to keep the law. So following Acts is 13 epistles, all written by Paul, beginning with Romans, ending with Philemon. 13 epistles written to the body of Christ, where the law should not be followed, circumcision is no longer a requirement, etc., etc. 
Now, after Paul's epistles come what are frequently called the circumcision epistles, which is Hebrews through Revelation. Following the decision at the Jerusalem Council and what James reiterated, as we just saw in Acts 21, these epistles are addressed specifically to Jews. And they continue to emphasize the importance of the law and the importance of circumcision. Think about it. Hebrews is titled Hebrews because it's written to Jews. The first verse of James says this, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. He addresses his epistle to Jews, the 12 tribes. The first verse of 1 Peter says his epistle is addressed to the diaspora. That's a Greek word that means the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Understanding that two different messages arose in the book of Acts, again at the Jerusalem Council, is the key to understanding the rest of the New Testament after the book of Acts. It can easily get confusing reading different books of the New Testament if you do not have proper context that Paul's epistles contain the uncircumcision message and the circumcision epistles contain the Jewish circumcision message. Whenever you open your Bible to read, or if you're in a Bible study and they tell you to open up to some particular book in the Bible, you should immediately know the big picture historically, just like that, in order to put what you're about to read in proper context. Are you in Genesis? Then that's the 2,400 year period of time covering the creation of the universe and what transpired in history before Israel. Are you somewhere in Exodus to Deuteronomy? That is the history of how the nation of Israel started with 70 people in Egypt, how they grew, were rescued out of Egypt, and spent time in the wilderness before entering the promised land. Are you in one of the Gospels? That is the story of Christ's life on earth, and remember, it's a continuation of the Old Testament. Are you in Acts? That begins with the historical account of Christ's ascension to heaven, marking the short time he spent on earth after his resurrection, and the beginning of life for early Christians without Christ physically. And then it shows the history of what transpired for the years following the ascension of Christ. Are you in one of Paul's epistles? Those were written specifically to the body of Christ those who James said were under no obligation to keep the law. Are you in one of the circumcision epistles? Those were specifically written to the Jews who believed, who were zealous for the law, who were to continue to keep the law. The key to making sense of such a large book as the Bible is to understand the big picture. So you immediately find yourself reading wherever that is you know exactly what's going on and where in the story you're reading from let's pray father in heaven just like to come to you today and thank you so much for your word <clears throat> your word is so powerful if we decide to use it 
And uh, just thank you so much for the people who have come before us, before me, who have spent countless hours studying your word and have let us in on what they've found and what they've discovered. And I pray that you just encourage everyone to continue to dive in to your truth and to not be overwhelmed, not be intimidated, and to just realize that you left us the Bible so that we could understand you, understand your body, understand how we are to be as people, as husbands, as wives, as parents, as children, and to just realize the importance of what you've given us. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.